I'm singing in just a moment, but before we get to that, I'm going to open our time in prayer, but we do want to just thank you all for being here, looking forward to what God is going to do among us today, and uh, just good to see everybody. So let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we'll move right into our singing time again. We would remind you that while we're singing, we would ask you to wear your mask. We would appreciate that. Thank you. All right, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity again to be with our family, the family that you've given us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this blessing that we can have on this morning to be together, to sing, to worship you, to hear from your word, to just be able to experience uh, what you have for us today that is your truth and your goodness and your grace that you've showered upon us and we can experience and praise you for that today. We thank you for that. Would you, would you be blessed? Would you be glorified as you allow us to worship you today? And I pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. soul 
because of your love, our hearts are clean. We lift you up with songs of freedom.
Thank you. 
Thank you for this time we've had. We thank you for the reminder that with you all is well with our soul because of what you have done, what you're doing, and what you're going to do because of who you are and who you will always be. Lord, we can find true hope, true peace, true joy. And no matter what comes our way, Lord, we can trust in you. And I want to thank you for that reminder this morning. Look forward to what you're going to continue to teach us as we meet together today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I do have a a few announcements for everybody this morning uh, before we move into the sermon portion of our service. Um, And uh, again, I'll just begin with uh, how things are going to be proceeding from here on out. Um, We have a few more weeks of what's been happening over the last couple weeks, 10 o'clock start of our singing service, Uh, then uh, announcements that'll go right on into our sermon service that'll be around 1030. Um, Streaming will begin uh, around 1030, uh, probably more like 1025 at this point. Uh, We are coming close to June. In June is when things will be adjusted even a little bit more as we add our adult Bible fellowship and Sunday school hour back to our Sunday morning schedule. And so uh, starting in June, which is only a few weeks away, that first Sunday of June, you'll still come here at 10. Everything's going to start at 10 just like it has been, so there's really no change there. You'll get here at 10. Uh, we'll go right into the service. Uh, we'll have a normal morning service that we would always have with singing, with a sermon, and announcements will follow all of that, and then we'll move right on into our adult Bible fellowship and Sunday school time. And uh, this summer, we're going to be trying to see how it's all going to work, uh, so that hopefully by the fall, we'll have all the kinks worked out, and we'd appreciate all of your uh, <clears throat> understanding, your grace, and your help as we try to transition to some new things here at the church. So we're really excited about all that's going on. We're excited that we're able to move forward uh, in different ways, and that's exciting to us. Uh, And so that's what's going to be happening here uh, over the next few weeks and into June. All right, a couple of extra announcements just to make sure everyone is aware. Uh, First of all, for our Epic Teens and parents of Epic Teens, we are meeting tonight at 5.30 uh, and that's going to be our, our final, like, normal meeting. Uh, starting at next week on the 23rd, we're having a closing picnic with our epic teens. Uh, and our closing picnic will, picnic will include food, of course. It'll include our annual kickball game in which the leaders and parents will get to um, <clears throat> destroy the teens yet again. Uh, and then we will have, uh, we will have uh, our final lesson on recognition of seniors And here's the important part, especially if you're a parent of a sixth grade student. Uh, Sixth graders are moving up next week. They can join us. All right. So they are officially part of the Epic Teen Group as of next week. I know that scares some of us because I know the group that's coming up, including one that I'm very close with. All right. So um, so that's happening. Uh, This next week is our final picnic as well as our Welcome to all our sixth graders coming in. Make sure you're aware of that. Um, we also have a child dedication happening next week. Uh, and this is the final week that you can talk to Carrie Kane if you want to have your child dedicated. It's been a couple years since we've been able to do this. Uh, so next week, uh, during our announcement time after the singing, we're going to go ahead and dedicate several children. And again, like last week, I explained our child dedication is is more about... 
uh, dedicating the parents and the church to bringing up the child in the way he should go by leading him towards Jesus. That's or her towards Jesus. That's the whole point. Uh, of a child dedication. So that's going to be happening next week. Again, if you have a child that you haven't dedicated, you'd like to do that, then talk to Carrie Kane this week and give, give her all the information she's going to need. And we'll make sure that happens next week. And just be here next week. If you're having your child dedicated, this is important. We need you here by like 1025, but really like 1015. Make sure you're here on time because uh, we don't want anyone to be embarrassed walking in late. So uh, we, that's going to be happening next week. And I don't think I have any other major announcements unless I'm missing something. Um, yeah, I know. Amen, right? But I'm still giving. It is, uh, it's uh, 1030 right now, so i got to give a couple minutes to people to make their way in, although I don't see anybody out there. So... Um, I'm not going to take questions because that will just get weird. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. Uh, I know I just prayed, but I'm going to pray again. You can't pray too much. So I'm going to pray to open our sermon portion of our service. And uh, we're looking forward to getting into uh, more into Daniel today after taking a little bit of a detour into Leviticus last week. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to what Pastor Justin's going to have to share. But why don't we open our time, our next portion in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again. For all that you've done, all that you've done to bring us here today, the opportunity to worship you through song, the opportunity to worship you just by uh, fellowshipping with one another. Even as we have interaction with one another, we know that you're among us, that you're in the midst of us, and that as we as we pray and talk and and listen to one another even, that you are being praised and worshipped. And today as we're about to hear from your word, I pray that you would help Pastor Justin as he uh, unpacks what you have said in the book of Daniel, that we would be have an understanding heart ready to understand what you would have for us, not only understand in our minds, but Lord, that you would help us to see how it can impact the way that we live as we just want to follow you the best we possibly can through your strength and your grace. So would you help us today as we go forward with that? Thank you again for all that you're doing in us, through us, around us, the the progress that's being made as we go forward from here. We look forward to what you're going to do. And I praise you ahead of time for everything that you're doing and all that you'll do. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. How about now? We're good? There we are. Thank you. Very good. (laughs) Sometimes it surprises us when God answers our prayers, doesn't it? 
Or maybe the surprise is really when he does exactly what we ask him to do. I am of the conviction that for the child of God, for the Christian, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. It's a myth. At the same time, most of us know that sometimes it sure feels like we're not getting an answer. We know what it's like to pray repeatedly, even for years, sometimes even for decades, perhaps for the salvation of a loved one or for the healing of a friend, but nothing seems to change. Hold that common experience in tension with what the Bible teaches us. In the New Testament, at least 12 times, we read promises that God will answer the prayers of his people. Especially in Jesus' teaching, these promises are specifically in the context of recognizing God as our Father, who is to be approached as a generous, loving Father who delights to dote on his kids. So when we seem to be experiencing the silence of God, when God doesn't seem to be responding to our requests, that can lead us to feel unloved, to question or doubt whether he really loves us. To increase the tension for just a moment, we should recognize that almost all of those promises have some kind of contextual limitation or condition attached to them. We have to pray in faith, or according to God's will, or in Jesus' name, for example. Also, it's important to notice that there are about 30 verses in the Old Testament, or in the Bible at large, that speak of God not hearing or not answering people's prayers. And that at least raises the question that one who prays might not be heard or might not be answered on occasion. Almost all of those verses are in the Old Testament, and almost all of them are in the context of God's wrathful judgment against his people. In Daniel 9, we find the prophet Daniel praying in exile under the judgment of God in Babylon. That alone doesn't bode well for him to expect an answer. Yet surprisingly, shockingly even, Daniel receives an immediate answer in the form of a visit from the angel Gabriel. Before we press into looking at the details of this angelic encounter, I want to resolve the tension I've created. It's important to remember that Israel's covenant relationship with God reflected in the Old Testament included certain stipulations about how the people could pray and what kinds of responses they could expect from Yahweh their God. Yahweh's refusal to hear or answer people's prayers is an expression of his wrathful judgment against their sin. But Jesus has endured God's wrathful judgment against our sin in our place so that God will never turn against us in wrathful judgment. Never. Thus, Christian prayer is different from Israelite prayer. Said differently, prayer for a person who relates to God on the basis of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, works in a certain way and has certain limitations, while prayer for a person who relates to God on the basis of the New Covenant, you and me, 
works differently. The prevalent threats that God will not listen or hear the prayers of His people are gone. What about the tension in our experience? The old adage holds true. God may answer our prayers in one of three ways. Yes, no, or wait. I would suggest a fourth that certainly rings true. Here's something better instead. For the Christian, our Heavenly Father always responds to every prayer, to every request we make. He is eager to do good to us in every circumstance of our lives. He cares very much about His needy children. These are fundamental truths about God and about our relationship with God that we must believe as we approach God in prayer and wait for and seek to recognize His answers. But for Daniel, there was no question about how God was answering his prayer. The angel came to instruct Daniel. As we read verses 20 to 23, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel will summarize what he's been up to, so I'll let him provide a bit of a review of what we looked at two weeks ago. But before we do that, let me summarize the message of Daniel chapter 9 as a whole. In response to Daniel's prayer, God revealed the time when he would rescue his people from the exile of sin, completely by grace, by sending the Messiah to die for them, establishing the eternal new covenant, and executing judgment against unbelieving Israel to fulfill the ultimate jubilee. Now, let's consider the arrival of Gabriel in verses 20 to 23. Daniel 9, verses 20 to 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The threefold subject of Daniel's prayer is well summarized here. Daniel's own sin, Israel's sin, and God's holy hill. He had engaged in a kind of corporate confession, which he wrote down for us in verses 4 to 15. Even though the prophet Daniel remained faithful in exile, he recognizes his own genuine sinfulness, and he apparently includes himself as part of the problem that caused the exile in the first place. Then as we read in verses 16 to 19, he pleads for grace from Yahweh. He acknowledges that neither he nor the people at large deserve for their God to act on their behalf. The Lord is rightly against them as they have set themselves against Him. Nevertheless, the prophet knows from his Bible that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is gracious and merciful. And so he appeals to God's grace and mercy to bring the people back to Judah and Jerusalem, to enable them to rebuild the temple, and to bring blessing to the city of Jerusalem once again. And we remember Daniel was prompted to pray this way because he had been reading 
Jeremiah's written records of the promises Yahweh had made, indicating a 70-year time period that the Lord had set when He would bring judgment against Babylon and bring the Jewish people home from exile. Daniel knew that he had been in Babylon almost 70 years, and he watched with his own eyes as the Medo-Persian armies came in and conquered Babylon, and now Darius the Mede, or Cyrus the Persian, had established a new empire. The silver chest and arms seen in Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2, the lopsided bear in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, and the most recently seen two-horned ram in the vision of chapter 8. Daniel was still praying. Maybe he would have said more than we have recorded in verses 4 to 19 when Gabriel suddenly arrived in Daniel's, in Daniel's presence. The prophet recognizes him, have, having seen him earlier in one of his earlier visions. Gabriel was identified by name in the vision of chapter 8, but here Daniel may be indicating that he was the angel who spoke to him also in the vision of chapter 7. We need to address briefly the manner of Gabriel's arrival, described in verse 21. The ESV has Gabriel came to me in swift flight. The New American Standard Bible says Gabriel came to me in my extreme weariness. The New American Standard Bible has probably got the better understanding here. The language of swift flight has led to unbiblical speculation about the possibility that angels have wings and that flight is their typical mode of transport. Daniel here describes Gabriel as a man, and that probably implies that he didn't perceive anything inhuman or superhuman about Gabriel's appearance. Rather, Daniel's probably describing here his own exhaustion. After all, he told us earlier that he had been fasting, and the New Testament writers often use the language of laboring, or struggling, or agonizing in prayer. So it makes sense that he might be exhausted when Gabriel arrives to provide God's answer. Gabriel doesn't leave Daniel in suspense about why he's come. At the end of Daniel's prayer, he had pleaded with God to delay not, or hurry up. Two weeks ago, I mentioned in passing that Daniel's prayer takes about three minutes to read out loud. In verse 23, Gabriel says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So the Lord dispatched Gabriel with a message as Daniel began pleading for mercy or pleading for grace. Thus, it took about three minutes for Gabriel to arrive from heaven to where Daniel was. He's come both to encourage Daniel and to help him understand This suggests that Daniel lacks understanding. Maybe even that he needs to be corrected in his misunderstanding. He had read Jeremiah's words about 70 years, and he had concluded that the time for God to act in fulfillment of that prophecy and other prophecies having to do with the restoration of God's people had almost arrived. Gabriel is going to tweak Daniel's understanding. Could Daniel have been taking Jeremiah's words too literally. But first, he encourages Daniel. Don't you wish an angel would appear to you and tell you that you are greatly loved by God? No, don't wish for that. That's a trick question. 
God has already proven how much He loves you. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or Romans 5, 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Note the present tense there. God continues to show His love for us today through that event 2,000 years ago. Or consider Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is actually Ephesians 2 here, the only passage in all the Bible that uses the language of great love. And it's targeted to, directed at us. God feels and expresses a special, unique covenant love for believers, for us, that He does not feel and does not express for the world of unbelievers. Yes, God loves the world. And He sent His Son as a demonstration of that love for the world. But that demonstration of love culminates in the cross as a special act of love toward those who would believe in Him. Can we fault Him for loving His bride in a way that He doesn't love other people? The phrase used in Daniel is different. The ESV, which says greatly loved, is following the tradition of the King James Version. The NIV and New American Standard Bible use the phrase highly esteemed. But the Christian Standard Bible has the clearest rendering. You are treasured by God. Daniel is like a diamond in the rough, to borrow a phrase from a Disney movie of my youth. A rare, faithful person among the Jews in exile. Daniel might have questioned his own value or the value of his continued faithfulness as he and his people remained in exile. There's little evidence of God's love for his people. And on the flip side, there's little evidence of their love for him either. But Daniel needs angelic encouragement at this point in a way that you and I should never need. If God never gave us another blessing in this life, if God allows us to suffer loss and experience grief and to break under pressure and to face persecution, it would not be appropriate for us to call into question His love for us. Not one bit. Why not? Because of the cross. Because of the gospel. Paul summarizes this gospel with four simple yet glorious words in Romans 8.31. God is for us. No matter what we experience in this life 
Paul wants us to hold fast to this truth. God is for us. Suffering and loss is not an indication of God being against us. The rhetorical question Paul raises in Romans 8.32 presents the irrefutable and amazing logic of the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his own son. God sacrificed, handed over his own eternally beloved son to be violently murdered, executed as a criminal in order to accomplish many things, six of which Gabriel reveals to Daniel in our passage. But one of the accomplishments was to prove a point, to prove to us believers that God is utterly committed to extending grace to us all the time, every moment of every day, in every circumstance we face, even the painful ones. Yes, Christian, you are greatly loved. When you need a reminder, and we all do need reminders from time to time, just not from an angel, you only need to turn to the gospel. Return to the cross. Look at the cross yet again. Before we dive into these difficult verses... I'd like to introduce a bit of light-hearted levity for the good of my soul as well as yours. When Alistair Begg came before his church preaching the book of Daniel and arrived at this passage, he had some important preliminary comments. I resonate very much with his sentiments, so let me quote him at length, though I won't dare to imitate his Scottish accent. I, having dealt with this for some considerable time now, have found to my great surprise and at times discouragement that I am disagreeing with the interpretation of these verses done by my closest friends whom I greatly admire. And when I'm encouraged, and then I'm encouraged by the fact that my closest friends disagree with each other. And then I realized that I actually disagree with myself. He goes on, many people view these verses with such emphasis that as soon as you say what you believe about them, you will either be included in their will or removed from it immediately. In what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm now about to unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. That is my hope, at least. So now, without further ado, let us consider the 77s and the sixfold solution as an answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel 9.24, Gabriel provides a summary answer to Daniel's prayer, which he will then elaborate on in verses 25 to 27. Let's read verse 24 and break it down into its parts. Our Bible translations may differ at certain important points. I'm reading from the ESV. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, 
and to anoint a most holy place. So, let's begin by talking about the period of time Gabriel starts with. Seventy weeks, or as the NIV more literally translates the phrase, seventy sevens, is recognized by almost all students of Scripture to be indicating seventy seven-year periods. Many Bibles, even those that are not study Bibles, have some kind of footnote to explain this. The term translated weeks or sevens refers to weeks of years. Now let's not gloss over that point too quickly. Those who insist on literal interpretation of the numbers and the time periods in the book of Daniel should admit that we are not, in fact, taking the phrase literally when we understand it as referring to 77-year periods. The reason we can confidently conclude this is because of Daniel's Bible. We're all recognizing the reality that Gabriel is using a figure of speech, and we're seeking to understand what does that mean. One place in Daniel's Bible, in our Bible together, uses this language and this idea of weeks of years. And it's the passage we talked about last Sunday, Leviticus 25, in the legislation regarding the Jubilee year. Leviticus 25.8, just as a reminder, says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. This concept lies in the background of Gabriel's statement here. And Daniel surely would have understood Gabriel to be referring to the idea of the Jubilee year, even though the phrase that is used there is not quite identical. Seventy-seven-year periods, 490 years, would equal ten jubilees, or a tenfold jubilee, which could point toward the fulfillment of the purposes of the jubilee year, as we talked about last week. Regardless of their interpretation of the rest of the passage, most students of Scripture recognize this, though not all students of Scripture make much of it, whereas others, like myself, believe that it is crucial for a proper understanding of the passage. Now, recall that Daniel had read in Jeremiah's prophecies that 70 years were to pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. That's how he put it in verse 2 of this chapter. Seventy years had almost elapsed, but Gabriel here indicates that Daniel needs to push his gaze out further, much further. Not seventy years, but seventy-seven-year periods, or 490 years. Daniel will see, with his own eyes, sometime within the next few months, after this encounter with Gabriel, King Cyrus of Persia grant permission for the Jews to return to Judah and Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. If Daniel didn't receive this message from Gabriel, he would have continued to assume that all the rest of God's promises associated with the return from exile in the messages of all the earlier prophets were about to come to pass too. Gabriel corrects Daniel's faulty expectations a much longer period is going to be required. 
even though God is going to fulfill his promises to bring the Jewish people back to the land and enable them to rebuild the temple, they will still be experiencing exile from God. They will still be under the rule of the pagan rulers of the Persian Empire, and then later the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, despite almost a century of relative independence after the Maccabean Revolt of 164 B.C. And most importantly, throughout the entire period of time, they will still be under the judgment of God for their rebellion. That is the problem that Gabriel's answer is intending to deal with, as we see in the sixfold solution that he supplies in the rest of this verse. As one writer puts it, the physical return from exile gets the people out of Babylon, but the problem of getting Babylon out of the people must be dealt with by a second stage. Before we look at these six goals or six aspects of God's ultimate solution, much is often made about Gabriel's statement that this answer has to do with your people and your holy city. These are the terms of Daniel's concern in his prayer. He had confessed his own sin and the sin of his own people and pleaded for God's blessing to return to the desolate city of Jerusalem. Often, Folks want to emphasize this that, this, that this must mean that what is announced in the rest of these verses must only deal with ethnic Jews, bloodline descendants of Abraham, Daniel's kinsmen according to the flesh, to borrow a phrase from Paul. This insistence seems to be an attempt to prevent a reader from interpreting this passage as having its fulfillment within the confines of the church age. At this juncture, can I simply set this line of argumentation to the side by reminding us all that God's people, the people of Israel, has never been a bloodline people restricted to one ethnic line. If you need proof, consider Moses' wife, Zipporah, the Midianite, Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, Uriah, the Hittite, and we could go on. But also consider the legislation within the Mosaic law that welcomes foreign sojourners to participate in Israel's festivals from Passover to the Day of Atonement, not to mention all the prophecies that envision other nations, Gentiles, being joined to the nation of Israel in the context of the fulfillment of God's restoration promises. With all that being said, Daniel's concern is with his people, the Jewish people currently living in Babylon under God's judgment and with the city of Jerusalem that lies empty and in ruins because of God's judgment through the Babylonian armies. And Gabriel's answer has immediate relevance for Daniel's concern, but it pushes beyond Daniel's immediate concern. After all, we can't expect Daniel or his contemporaries to still be around when the culmination of the 70 weeks period is up. So let's consider each of these six goals, six purposes, six outcomes of the 70 weeks period, one at a time. The way Gabriel sets this up, we are not to expect that these will be fulfilled gradually throughout the duration of the 70 weeks. Rather, 
the 70th week, is set up as the climax. During that week, God will accomplish these six things. First, to finish the transgression, or, as the Christian Standard Bible has it, to bring the rebellion to an end. We saw this word for transgression or rebellion in chapter 8, where I argued it referred to the rebellion of the Jewish people during the Greek empire that would result in God bringing, sending Antiochus IV Epiphanes to bring judgment against their rebellion. Their rebellion during that period reached its climactic point when they sought to fit in with the Greek culture, particularly when men among the Jewish leadership sought to surgically remove indications of their circumcision, expressing their embarrassment about the physical sign of their covenant relationship with God. The Lord mercifully and righteously brought judgment against Antiochus IV and allowed the Jews to rededicate the temple that he had desecrated and to gain a measured independence. But that was not the end of Jewish rebellion against God. We see it continuing during the Roman Empire in the first century. And would it be too out of line to suggest that the climactic act of their rebellion against God, where they again crossed the line of no return, escalated even beyond where they had gone before, came to pass when they crucified their Messiah? Should we be surprised if we see the convergence of the fourth kingdom of the visions of this book with the 70th week of the 70th, 70 weeks prophecy. The finishing of the rebellion. Does that mean it's over? Or does that mean that God deals with it climactically and finally and decisively? Or could it be similar to the language that Jesus used against the Jewish leaders of his day, as recorded in Matthew 23, 32 and 33? Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The judgment to come against, the, against that generation of Jesus' contemporaries was announced in Gabriel's words. But at the same time, right after Jesus chastises these Jewish leaders so harshly, he laments over the city, which will experience yet another desolation after Jesus is executed just outside that same rebellious city. Or, perhaps we should consider the flip side of this. To finish the rebellion, to stop rebelling, would be equivalent to repenting, would it not? So, could Gabriel be pointing to the day when God would grant repentance to the Jewish people? Isn't that what's needed for their alienation from God to end? And isn't that what Jesus provides? The apostles said to some Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, verses 30 and 31, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We'll see the importance of the word leader Next week, where we'll see that Peter here in Acts 4 was probably thinking of this passage from Daniel 9 as he addressed those rebellious Jewish leaders. Jesus 
granted repentance to Israel, to those within Israel who would receive the gift through the preaching of the apostles. And he continues to do so through the church's proclamation of the gospel today. The finishing of the transgression has already begun, and it began during the 70th week of Gabriel's message, but it is not yet complete. Let's look at the second goal of this time span, to end sin. This is perhaps the one that most leads people to conclude that these purposes can't yet have been fulfilled. Sin remains a problem for everybody on the planet, right? Christians still sin, Jews still sin, Gentiles still sin, everybody still sins. Yet, the book of Hebrews seems to indicate that Jesus has indeed already put an end to sin. Consider Hebrews 9, 24 to 28. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. He's talking about the Day of Atonement there. For then, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And... Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author is indicating that Jesus, the Messiah, has fulfilled the day of atonement for us who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. He dealt decisively and finally with sin so that when he returns, he won't be dealing with sin. His first coming, particularly his death on the cross, put away sin. This is the significance of what we call the scapegoat from the Day of Atonement. The high priest would confess all the sins of all the people from the previous year, a quite generic confession, I'm sure, And he would place his hands on the goat's head, symbolically transferring the guilt of the people onto that goat. And then he puts it away, sends it out of the camp into the wilderness, visually depicting the forgiveness of the people's sins, separating the sin, the guilt of sin from the people as far as the east is from the west, to borrow a phrase from the psalmist. Jesus did that 2,000 years ago. And the author of Hebrews is indicating that this never has to be repeated for Jewish people today, as well as for everyone else on the planet. If you want your sins forgiven by the one true God, you can only look to the crucified Messiah. You don't have to look forward to His coming later. His arrival in the 70th week has already taken place. For those of us who have received this forgiveness, we recognize and revel in, I hope, the grandeur of God's grace. But we also continue to wrestle with the continued presence of sin in our lives. What one writer many years ago referred to as the impossible possibility. 
If Jesus has put an end to sin, why is there still so much of it? Not just in the world, but in my own life. The already but not yet nature of the fulfillment of prophecy helps us understand that God really has put an end to the dominion of sin in the lives of all who trust in Him. He really has forgiven us so that we are no longer and never will be guilty before God. Nevertheless, we are not yet free from the presence of sin. It is not yet true that we may relax the fight against sin in our own lives. The final transformation that totally removes sin from our experience will happen when He appears a second time to save us. The 70th week is about salvation. And yet, so many people want to make it about judgment. There is indeed judgment related to the 70th week, but it is not the main thing, as we'll see next week. Let's press on to the third goal to be accomplished at the culmination of this 70th week, 70-week period, to atone for iniquity. The word translated iniquity can refer to different aspects of our sinfulness, whether the actual commission of sins or the guilt accrued before God because of our sin. But the fundamental meaning of the word seems to point to the very twistedness of our nature. Transgression, sin, iniquity, that trio of words certainly covers it all. But it's the verbs in these phrases that are most important. What has to be done with regard to rebellion, sin, and iniquity? If the last one points to our fundamental twistedness, our basic brokenness, then surely the word atone is intended to provide the most comprehensive solution to the problem at hand. We've already pointed back to the day of atonement. And as Daniel prays in exile, we must consider how much of a mess people's lives must have been not having had a day of atonement in at least 70 years. Think about it. For faithful Jews, at least, every year they would have looked forward to the 10th day of the 7th month as the divine reset day where their relationship with God could start fresh. They could count on the gracious gift of animal sacrifices to stand in the place of the deserved death of people. God graciously chose to accept as payment for sin animals. That's hardly sufficient, hardly equivalent value, the death of animals to stand in the place of the deserved death of sinful people. Under the judgment of God, with no temple, no sacrifices, no priests, the people languished in exile with the guilt of their sins just piling up. Year after year, even Daniel, among the tiny faithful remnants still holding on to God's promises, surely would have grieved the loss of the animal, the annual atonement sacrifices for his own sins. Now, Gabriel uses that wonderful word, atone. Oh, how bittersweet. Atonement is coming. Final, ultimate, Wonderful, free atonement is coming. But not for 70 weeks of years. Could it possibly be retroactive? A discussion for another time, perhaps. Nevertheless, the promise is atonement for iniquity. We looked at Hebrews 9, 
which highlights Jesus' fulfillment of the Day of Atonement sacrifices specifically. Consider also Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Paul states the universal problem of all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, as plainly as anyone in the Bible. Everybody sins and everybody lacks God's glory. No one can see God's glory. No one can affirm God's glory. No one can celebrate God's glory. No one can receive the benefits of God's glory or share in God's glory. No Jew, no Gentile. Not Daniel, not Abraham, not Moses, not Paul, not you, not me. How can that problem ever be remedied? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He solved the problem. He provided the solution in the 70th week as announced by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Daniel. He offers justification, a verdict of righteous to sinners who deserve the verdict, guilty. How? How can sinners alienated from God's glory get that? Grace. Grace alone. God must give it as a gift. And He does give it as a gift. On what basis? How can He not be charged with being an unjust judge? If he's handing out righteous verdicts to guilty sinners, how is he not the worst judge you ever heard of? Redemption. Redemption. Jesus, the Messiah, paid the penalty due for my sins. How did he do that? When did he do that? He did that 2,000 years ago when God, the judge, publicly presented him to the world. Jesus, John said God sent His Son as a propitiation. It's not a word we use very much. And the Greek word Paul uses is not a word they would have used much. He's painting a very vivid picture for his audience with this word. So here's a picture. If we can put that next slide up on the screen to try to capture what Paul means, what he's trying to communicate here. The Greek word Paul uses most normally refers to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, what our English Bibles sometimes call the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, and its lid, of course, located inside the Holy of Holies in the temple, would only be visible to one person once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, the high priest is instructed to take the blood from the sin offerings on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle some of it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Paul is saying here that God has now, once and for all, presented Jesus publicly for all to see, not just the high priest, as that lid with blood on it. Jesus is the scapegoat carrying the guilt of our sin away. Jesus is the bull of the sin offering, dying to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, 
the emblem of God's presence in the temple, the very connecting point between God and His people. And that's where the blood must be applied. And so it is. Recall from last week that the Jubilee year begins with the Day of Atonement. Atonement then results in freedom for the people. Atonement is a very complex idea in the Mosaic Law. It involves a substitutionary sacrifice that results in three things, cleansing, forgiveness, and reconciliation. It also conveys the idea of the payment of a penalty and the turning away of God's wrath. It is understandable why the NIV would go with a phrase like sacrifice of atonement in Romans 3.25 to try to broaden out the implications Paul is definitely wanting us to get. The English word propitiation focuses narrowly on the removal of God's wrath, which is certainly a major aspect of atonement. However, both Gabriel and Paul intend to communicate the comprehensive understanding of atonement present in the Mosaic Law. In fact, it may be particularly significant to notice that the three words Gabriel uses for sin, transgression, sin, and iniquity, are featured in the Day of Atonement legislation in Leviticus 16 and in one other place, Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant, which, of course, prophetically describes Jesus. So then, to atone for iniquity is something accomplished by Jesus' death 2,000 years ago in the 70th week of Gabriel's time frame. Even here, we should recognize an already but not yet fulfillment. To be sure, the sacrifice has already been made, once for all, never to be repeated. But the beneficiaries of that sacrifice remain. As Paul said, the propitiation must be received by faith. Thus, the ultimate jubilee year, the year of the Lord's favor, the 70th week, must continue until all the beneficiaries of the final Day of Atonement sacrifice have received its benefits by faith. Let's move into the fourth goal presented for this 70-week period to to bring in everlasting righteousness. Many students of Scripture see this one as standing as an impossible barrier to believing that all of these six goals could be accomplished prior to Jesus' second coming and the inauguration of the millennial kingdom. However, the Bible speaks many times about people's righteousness lasting forever, even from an Old Testament vantage point. Consider, for example, Psalm 112.9, referring to the man who fears the Lord. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Paul quotes that verse in 2 Corinthians 9, 9 and applies it to Christians. Certainly, it is true that Gabriel is presenting this as an ultimate result of God's work of grace in salvation. But isn't it good and right to celebrate what we've seen already this morning regarding the verdict of righteousness offered to us as an everlasting gift of God's grace? The reality that that righteous verdict will never, can never be appealed or overturned forever is good news. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, I don't think Paul 
wants us to envision becoming God's righteousness sometime out in the future. He seems rather to present this as a settled result of our trusting Jesus, of having received God's grace. Yes, like everything we've looked at, of course, there is an already not yet fulfillment of this everlasting righteousness. But God has certainly brought it in now. We, indeed, with the Apostle Peter, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness and righteousness alone dwells. Nevertheless, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, the prophet Isaiah, sang and talked about the righteous one par excellence has come, embodying God's own everlasting righteousness in himself, enabling those who trust in him to be counted righteous forever and and enabling those who trust in him to live out true righteousness even now. Let's press on to the fifth goal, to seal both vision and profit. Gabriel utilizes a metaphor here, the image of sealing. What could it mean? Literally, the verb has to do with stamping a document to indicate authorship, the authority behind what is written. Sealing vision makes sense along these lines as though God might stamp the written record of a prophetic vision, indicating that he sent the vision and the written description and explanation are validated as his own message. Sealing a document also has the sense of keeping it closed off so that only the intended recipients might read the contents. But it's rare to find the object of this verb being a person. What could it mean to seal a prophet? And in the context of this prophetic word through the angel Gabriel, with its indications of finality, what could this imply? Could this refer to some final expression of prophecy that would come in the 70th week? A final vision given to a final prophet to deliver God's final word to his people that would then be sealed in the sense of authorized somehow by God? Or in a general extended application, could this sealing refer cryptically to the final fulfillment of all visionary and prophetic messages during the 70th week? Or is this simply a way of communicating to the prophet Daniel that when the 70th week comes, there will be no more need for prophetic visions or prophetic words from God to his people? I don't know. I remain uncertain and I refuse to speculate any further. So let's go to the sixth and final goal. And it is perhaps the most uncertain of the six. To anoint the holiest. The ESV has to anoint a most holy place. The 2011 NIV has the most holy place all capitalized. The King James Version has the most holy with just the word holy capitalized. Most of our English Bibles have a footnote at this point indicating an alternative option. The ESV's footnote indicates simply or thing or one. The word place is not in the Hebrew text here. The phrase is literally holy of holies, which is the normal way Hebrew expresses the superlative, the greatest of something. So Gabriel refers here to anointing the holiest place, the holiest thing. 
or the holiest person? Can we be sure about what he means? Most often, it is assumed that the temple in Jerusalem must be intended here. That would be connected to Daniel's concern in his prayer for God's holy hill. Certainly, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem was something God promised to the exiles. But as we've seen, Gabriel is pushing Daniel's gaze way out beyond the return to the land and the rebuilding of the temple. Thus, many believe this to be referring to the establishment and anointing of the so-called millennial temple. My question about that possibility is simply, if the 70th week ends before the millennium, how could Gabriel be referring to an event that won't happen until after the 70 weeks period is over? In any case, I take it as an open question and probably impossible to answer with any certainty whether it would have made any sense to Daniel to think of anointing the Holy of Holies in the temple. The closest we get to even the possibility of anointing the temple or anointing the most holy place within the temple is in the instruction for constructing the tabernacle in the first place. Exodus chapter 40, verses 9 to 11, we read of Yahweh commanding Moses to set up the tabernacle, the tent, and anoint the whole tent structure, as well as anointing the altar and some of the other furniture that was to stand outside the Holy of Holies. There's no instruction, however, to anoint the Holy of Holies itself. Now, perhaps I could be accused of splitting hairs. I will own it. But, I believe the Spirit-inspired details matter, every jot and tittle, and lack thereof. Another detail in Hebrew remains important to me in this regard. There are 11 occasions in the Old Testament where the innermost room of the temple is referred to as the Holy of Holies. And in all 11 occasions, the word holies has the Hebrew article We could say it literally as holy of the holies, if that made any sense in English. Daniel has written a different phrase here. The phrase is simply holy of holies with no the, no article, which is a phrase that also appears just like this 20 times in the Old Testament, and it never refers to the innermost room of the temple or the tabernacle. This is not a slam dunk case, okay? We are dealing in technicalities here at this point. But for me, this data, these facts, caution against making an assumption, assuming without any further evidence that Gabriel intends to refer to a temple. And it opens the door wide enough to consider the alternative that has been a common understanding of this phrase throughout church history and even by some Jewish rabbis. That is... Gabriel is referring to the anointing of the most holiest, forgive the double superlative, person, the anointed one par excellence, the Messiah, the Christ. This makes sense in the context because the Messiah becomes the main feature, the main character, the main actor described in the following verses. The accomplishments of the 70 weeks are centered around the coming and work of the Messiah. Everybody agrees about that. Consider the anointing of the anointed one as it's presented in the New Testament. Peter addressed the Gentile, Cornelius, and and his Gentile household 
and we pick up his words in Acts chapter 10, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Oh, doesn't this take us back to last week, where we considered Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Jesus' fulfillment of that prophecy, as indicated in Luke chapter 4. Peter was probably there for that synagogue service in Nazareth. And he heard Jesus claim that prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah, about the fulfillment of the ultimate jubilee, the ultimate proclamation of liberty for the captives, was being fulfilled right then and right there in his ministry. Now, after months of preaching, of Peter preaching primarily to Jews... After months of seeing thousands upon thousands of Jews accept their Messiah, repent from their rebellion and sin, and experience the release of the Jubilee, Peter has to have a visionary experience to convince him that the Jubilee proclamation is for Gentiles too. Yes, Gabriel's gospel is for Daniel's people. And we'll see next week what he has to say about Daniel's holy holy city, Jerusalem. The 70 weeks are for the Jews, but not for the Jews only. Not for the Jews in exclusion of the Gentiles. No. Gabriel's gospel, like Paul's gospel, because they are the same gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Pastor Mitch Chase summarizes the point well. The gospel message of Jesus' person and work is a word of jubilee, of liberation from the power of sin and its wages. Through a new and greater exodus, Jesus led his people from the greatest captor and deepest exile. Because he conquered, we conquer. His victory and vindication become ours by grace through faith. Daniel was concerned about the return of the Jews from their exile in Babylon. And he was right to pray his representative prayer of confession and to ask God to bring them back to the land. But the answer Gabriel provides points to the exile behind the exile, the larger exile that included and caused the exile of the Jews. Yahweh, the God of Israel, always intended to bring ultimate blessing to all nations through the one nation of Israel. Said differently, God intended to bring humanity back from its exile in connection with bringing Israel back from its exile. The return from exile Daniel was focused on was God's means to a greater end. God's plan to bring Adam's descendants out of exile, to rescue humanity from slavery to sin, Satan, and death, included as one necessary phase bringing Abraham's descendants out of exile, restoring them to their land in order to set the stage for the arrival of the Messiah so that he would offer himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, fulfilling the day of atonement, kicking off the final and eternal jubilee, proclaiming permanent liberty to the captives, 
regardless of ethnicity. Next week, we'll look at the way Gabriel divides up the 70 weeks and we'll zero in on the crucial event of the 70th week and we'll see how everything else Gabriel says is connected to that crucial event. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this glorious prophetic word. It is grievous and unfortunate that it has produced such disagreement and disunity throughout our history. But, O Lord, I pray as we look at these words, as we re-look at them and re-examine them and think through them over the next week, would you help us to gain greater clarity to what's there? Help us to be willing to sit under your word, humble ourselves, and be corrected if need be in our understanding of these things. And if we want to, and if we can, if we need to, if we must, remain unclear on the details, let us live by faith and trust that your word will come to pass, even if it looks different than we might expect. We can, we can be sure of one thing, it will be better than we imagine. Thank you, Father, for your promises and your faithfulness to them. You have shown yourself, proven yourself to be utterly faithful. You have proven your love for your people in the death of your Son. Would you help us never question that? Would you help us never doubt? And when we feel those questions and we feel those doubts, help us to turn our eyes back to the cross. Help us to look yet again, freshly, at the death of Jesus on our behalf and in our place. And help us to see more than we've seen before. So thank you for these words. Thank you for the challenge that they bring to our understanding. They were challenging for Daniel as well. And so we thank you for your spirit who lives within us to grant illumination. As we read these words together and discuss them and reflect on them as your people together. Help us to trust you even when we don't understand. Help us to trust you even when there's disagreement and there's confusion. Help us to trust you. You are never confused. You are never deceiving us. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word with your people. Would you help us to do that ever more faithfully and ever more diligently in the days to come? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.